Well, thank you all for coming. I'm not going to do a long introduction. I'll let the sisters introduce themselves, but uh, we have the honor of having four Dominican sisters who live right in our neighborhood or just to the south of us um, to talk today about discernment. So, sisters, thank you for being here. the Dominican Sisters of Mary Mother of the Eucharist, but some of you might recognize us as the people who teach next door to your campus for fire drills. <laughs> um, uh, so um, as our community was founded in 1997. Uh, we're based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and over the past, what, 20 years, we've now peppered the United States with various uh, teaching missions. So um, as religious, our primary identity is consecrated women uh, having taken the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, but we live that out um, as, as teachers um, and uh, in the tradition of St. Dominic, you know, who founded the Dominican order in the 13th century with the main goal of teaching and preaching the truth um, to, you know, in, in, in many kind of uncanny parallels into a, a world that was Christian but losing its Christianity, a, um, a, a Europe that was Christianized uh, but was falling slowly into a movement that I won't get into, but and here entertain myself as a history teacher uh, called Albigensianism. It was bad. You can Google it. But um, <laughs> um, but uh, so re-Christianizing in some ways the new evangelization of the 13th century. And so a particular emphasis for us as Dominicans is bringing Christ uh, through an emphasis on uh, on teaching and the life of the mind. And you know, there's a handful of there's a what I see five women in the room, six women in the room, uh, seven women in the room. There's also a good number of uh, gentlemen, Dominican order has there's girl Dominicans and boy Dominicans too. So we, uh, our community is part of. You could kind of draw out an umbrella. The Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, uh, is one community. Um, there are many uh, different female communities of Dominicans, but there are also, of course, all around the world, uh, male Dominicans are friars uh, who are priests or brothers that teach in universities, go on preaching tours, um, minister in parishes. And so I, anything that we say, um, you can uh, imagine a man wearing this, but not this, doing a similar version of that. And so hopefully what we have to say, uh, certainly, um, you know, if that resonates with you uh, as men, there's guy Dominicans, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Um, so that's a little bit about our community. Uh, towards the end, you know, when we do some questions. Uh, if you have anything specific about the Dominican charism, uh, that is the identity that's been given to the order. Um, certainly we can talk a bit more about that, but the main thrust really is, uh, you know, one of our mottos is truth. Um, and so preaching the truth, teaching the truth, that's Christ and his church and God's revelation. Uh, and uh, to give to others the fruits of your contemplation. So I talk about teaching. Um, not all of us teach uh, theology. I teach history. I know Sister Mary Elizabeth teaches science. But the first part of our day is always spent in prayer, and that time of silence and contemplation and, and prayer uh, is what gives us the ability to go out into the classroom and be present to our students and teach them. And so uh, you, know, you can't give what you don't have. So uh, truth, but also that truth that we receive in prayer and then pass on to those that we encounter uh, in our apostolate and how we live out our, our consecrated life. So it's a very general uh, description of Dominican. Uh, I know what you all really wanted the juicy details, right? So how do people find, how did, how did the sisters find themselves uh, where they are today? So I'm going to hand the uh, figurative mic off to Sister Mary Elizabeth. Wonderful. So my name is Sister Mary Elizabeth, and I just wanted to let you know I feel really at home here because I have the same three posters in my science classroom. <laughs> so um, as Sister said, I teach science. I'm currently teaching physics and chemistry, and I entered in 2002. And how did I get here? 
Well, I was raised, uh, my mom's Catholic, my dad's Protestant, and I had a question all through growing up saying like, you know, what's the true faith? I really had a sense that the Bible was the word of God and I believed in God, but like which Christian denomination, like tell me more, like how am I supposed to know? And this is a question I had when I was confirmed in the eighth or ninth grade. In fact, I kind of made a deal with God. I said, well, I don't really know about the Catholic Church part yet, but I want more of you in my life. So that's what this means. I don't think you're really supposed to do that. Talk to Father about that later. But um, that's where I was at that point, and I didn't feel comfortable enough to like go talk to the priest or to talk to somebody else. And I didn't want to cause family tension with the difference in religion by bringing up like, well, I'm not sure. So I just kept all those you know questions I had to myself and to God. You know, just between us. And one of my questions was about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And I had learned in English class that, you know, there's different types of ways to say things. And sometimes there's analogies or metaphors. And like, well, how do I know? Did Jesus really mean it? Like, what's going on? So um, I didn't really get farther than that in high school. Went to college. Didn't really get farther than that in college. Still had that question. Uh, ended up at the University of Michigan in graduate school. And I learned there's this thing called Catholic radio. What do you know? So I started listening to the Catholic radio and my questions started getting answered. It's like, oh, oh, that's why we have a pope. Oh, okay. Didn't realize I had like a little block against that, but now it makes sense. Oh, that's why, you know, we have Mary. Oh, that, oh, Jesus really meant what he said in the real presence. It really is Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity. This is God's, God's word is so powerful. He could say, let there be light, and there's light. He can create with his word. He could easily take what was, you know, originally bread and say, this is my body, and it's, and it's him. And so I really had that, um, sense of like, okay, the Catholic Church, the true church. I was, you know, raised Catholic, but I haven't been going to confession. I haven't been, you know, I was like, okay, so this is like, I actually did not remember. Our, my church growing up was a little, had some interesting practices, and I did not remember going to individual confession from second grade until grad school. Maybe I went before my confirmation, not sure. So I was like, wow, that's kind of scary. Um, but by God's grace and praying to a lot of saints, which I, even that point, I was still like, saints, do I pray to them? What does that mean? It's like, I know I need to go to confession. So I went to confession and really was at this point where I was like, okay, I, I know I'm supposed to be Catholic. The Catholic church is the true church. And there's a lot of stuff I need to say in this confessional. And it was God's grace. Honestly, the priest really wasn't that helpful. Um, like he just wasn't like, and it, this was actually part of part of showed me the power of the sacraments. The priest is the instrument; he's acting in the person of Christ, and it's not about him. It's about God working through that. I'm like getting goosebumps. It's about God working through that sacrament, and it is so powerful. He was like, kind of like being like, "Oh, don't worry about that." And I'm thinking, "No, that's a sin," and I'm saying it because this is important that I confess it. But when he gave me absolution, I, I was clean and I had that grace. And that didn't mean it wasn't that it was so easy when you leave. It wasn't like perfectly easy, but I had the strength by God's grace to persevere. Um, so then like <clears throat> a year later or so, I was like, well, I want to get deeper in the faith. And I heard about this thing called daily mass and this thing called Eucharistic adoration. Honestly, I was kind of like hesitant to go to daily mass because like maybe it was different than Sunday mass and everybody would like look at me and know I was like a newcomer. Like she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, 
But I went, and I thought I was like not really that much different. It's just a lot shorter. <laughs> um, and then pretty soon, I was going to daily mass in addition to Sunday mass, you know, once a week, and then every day of the week, as much as I could fit it in. Um, and then adoration started out a few minutes, and then a lot more minutes, a lot more regularly. And I had also heard on Catholic radio that you should pray about your vocation. It's like, oh, like you could become a sister. You could become a, you know, like all these options are out, you know, are out there. And it's like, but you should ask God what his plan is for you. I was like, that's a good idea. I want to get more into my faith. I just wanted to be so open to it. I was like, Jesus, if you want me to be a missionary in some country where they only eat fish, I would like, could not stand fish. I would do it for you. Okay. Like I would do it for you. Um, so, or if you want me to enter a vocation where public speaking is involved, I was petrified of speaking in front of people. Um, I was like, I would do it for you, you know? So like, okay, Jesus, please bless my future spouse, my future in-laws or whatever your will is. <laughs> okay. So that was my prayer for a while. And then I started thinking, why am I telling God what's going to make me happy? He's the one that knows what's going to make me happy. He's the one that's going to know what's going to fulfill me. So I started actually asking him, you know, what are your, what's your call? Is it to married life? That's a beautiful vocation. Is it to religious life? That's also a beautiful vocation. And I, I had a lot of misconceptions. I had to learn more about it. Um, so I started praying, uh, spent a lot of time in front of the Blessed Sacrament, just with Jesus, being heart to heart, talking to him, with spiritual direction with a, a priest. And the priest said, you know, you will know. God wants you to know your vocation. Another priest told me once, sometimes he doesn't tell you right away because the gift he wants to give you is so big, he has to expand your heart first. So that time of discernment is a time where he's expanding your heart to receive the blessings he has for you, the gift he has for you. And then just praying one day in front of, you know, I got closer and closer to thinking, um, like, yeah, I'm called to religious life. I think I'm called, I'm not 100% sure, but I think, I'm, you know, maybe I'm going in this direction. Just one day I felt like, for the Blessed Sacrament, Jesus like, will you be my bride? And at that point, I'd gotten to the point where I was free enough to just have that joyful yes. Like, yes, I want to throw myself into this. Yes, I will be yours forever. Um, and then took the next steps of, at that point, I'd already, you know, been thinking about different communities, been on retreats. And the only way I would know more certainly that this was God's will is just to jump in um, and, and see how it went. So that's my story. Wow, what a great story. No, that's really great. I was, well, I was listening to Sister tell her story and thinking about where I was in college, and I was a little later to the party. I actually, I was raised a Protestant and I converted when I was in college. So it was really about my junior year that I made the decision to actually give my life to Christ and be really committed to him as a Catholic. So, but I remember about six months after I became a Catholic, I'm, I'm from the great state of Texas. And that's right, that's right. And I was at the University of Texas at Austin, and I remember exactly where I was on campus when I was, I was walking past the tower. And uh, it's this kind of iconic place on, on campus. You can look down and see the Texas Capitol. And I realized for the first time that all the men that I was interested in dating all looked like Jesus. 
<laughs> and I realized that now that I was a Catholic, that that could mean something entirely different and that I could actually date Jesus and this could be my vocation. And that was the most frightening thing that I could think of in that possible, in that moment. And I remember immediately thinking like, oh no, no, definitely not. But because I was a new Catholic and I was still trying to figure out what that meant and going to daily mass and confession and what are bishops, I remember having that question. Um, I thought to myself, well, I want to be a good Catholic girl and good Catholic girls discern their vocation. So, uh, and somewhere along there, I got it into my mind that the only real religious community left was the Carmelites. So I dutifully trooped down to the closest Carmelite monastery to discern my vocation very seriously. And I went in there and I heard the Carmelites chant mass. It was beautiful, it was so beautiful. But there was this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach thinking that if this was really my vocation, I could never leave. And so I joke that the tread marks from my tires are probably still in their driveway. I got out of there so fast. I thought, no, if, if this is really my calling in life, God must really want to punish me for all my past sins. So I made this correlation between religious life and punishment and torture and penance, all wrapped up. And it actually took me several years to kind of get over that. But in the midst of learning how to be a good Catholic, going to Mass on Sunday, learning about the beauty of religious life and being a, self -gift, being a gift to my friends and to my family, I started to kind of unravel a lot of those misconceptions about what religious life is. And I remember <clears throat> that it was so firmly implanted in my mind that I was going to be married and I was going to find the perfect man and I was going to find the perfect apartment until then and the perfect job that every year I had a different apartment and a different job and so on and so forth. But I, find, I finally found myself after about five years in the perfect job that I loved. And I had a fantastic roommate and she had a dog and we had two rocking chairs on the back porch and I got to travel and I was dating a really wonderful man that I was thinking about marrying. And I remember that sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach that just was not going away ever. And I remember looking at my boyfriend one day and, and thinking like, he's so great. But something hit me, it was a real moment of grace where I just realized, I thought this is never gonna be enough for me. And it's then that I started to put the pieces together that I was really only at peace, that that feeling in the pit of my stomach that had kind of been with me since I'd been to the Carmelites, it only went away when I was in adoration in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> this is really bad. This means I can't get married. But I, I so my, my own discernment process was actually very intellectual. It was very in my head. I just started to put these pieces together and realize this is not gonna work. I can't date Mark and keep doing this and then actually pursue my vocation if it's something different. But I was going to daily mass and I was going to holy hours with the missionaries of charity. You know who the missionaries of charity are, I hope. They're Mother Teresa's sisters. But there was a woman there who, uh, and she would often tell me about her daughter. Her daughter was my age. And, and one day her daughter came to the holy hour that I would always frequent at five o'clock on Sundays. And I remember she came in and she was just glowing. And she was everything her mother had mentioned. She was my age, she was cute. She had just graduated from St. Louis University. 
And I was talking to her and I found out that she had just received her acceptance letter from this religious community in Ann Arbor, Michigan called the Dominican Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> this is really bad. I have to like shut her down and get her to stop talking because <laughs> this could get really dangerous. But then I ran into her again at daily mass. It was really bad. And so, I, and so finally she asked me out to lunch and I had the courage to talk to her a little bit more. And I heard more about her own discernment process and how she had also had her misgivings about religious life. There just aren't a whole lot of religious in Texas. You don't see them walking around. That's changing a lot now, but at least at the time when, when we were discerning. And I felt so comfortable with her, and she really encouraged me to call the mother house in Ann Arbor and to go on a retreat and to continue kind of giving God an open heart. And, um, and I smiled politely. <laughs> And I thought, no, I'm not really going to do that. I don't really know anybody in Michigan. And what Texan actually moves to Michigan? Um, but a week later, I walked into my job and discovered that I was going to go to Michigan on a business trip and a few months from then. And I thought, oh, no, this is really bad. God is lining all these things up. I could see it. There was no, there was no second guessing that this was all about my vocation. And when I got to Michigan, I took a day off from my job and I drove to the mother house and I met our vocations directress and had a really long, hard conversation with her where I was able to really disclose a lot of my fears and misgivings about religious life. But I saw all the sisters at the mother house. I saw how beautiful they are and how free they are to be the brides that Sister Mary Elizabeth mentioned. And I remember just having that last conversation with Sister Joseph Andrew. And she, she asked me, she said, you know, we're about to go into Compline, into night prayer. It's the last prayers any religious community says before bed. And I really want you to ask the Lord, what does he want for you? What's his will? And I thought, okay, you know, that seems easy enough. And I, I walked into the chapel and I heard the sisters chant Compline and it was so beautiful but I was terrified utterly terrified and I did ask Jesus sort of I think I don't really remember but I came out of that chapel and there was Sister Joseph Andrew bright and beaming waiting for me and asking me what did Jesus actually say to you and I just remember opening my mouth and being ready to give some other excuse for why, you know, I, have, I don't have time for this. I've been working all week. I really need to talk to my spiritual director and really ready to tell her, no, this isn't for me. But what came out of my mouth was actually, I don't see why not. <laughs> and because I thought in that moment, I'd been so used to running away that it was time to say yes. And also kind of like what Sister Mary Elizabeth mentioned, there's a certain point when in your discernment where you can only do so much on your own. And I realized if I was really gonna find out if religious life was my vocation, I needed to just enter. And um, I remember going back to my hotel room that night and really having a little more space to breathe, I wasn't so terrified, and really asking Jesus that question, like what would it take for me to enter the convent? right now, like right now, what would I need to do? I didn't need to do very much. I needed to get out of my cell phone contract and sell my car, and that's it. I didn't have a whole lot of stuff. God had already prepared so many other things in my life so that I could say yes. 
So actually that day when I went back to Texas, I sold everything I owned and I entered the convent three weeks later. And that was 11 years ago. And I've never been happier. So that's my story. So I'm actually, we're just gonna open it up to um, questions that you have before we like go on and say anything else. So you might have, you know, I think there's a lot that's been said about discernment and religious life through just what the sisters have said um, and in the sisters' own stories. Um, so we'd like to open it up to you at this point. Otherwise, we can just tell you more stories. <laughs> awesome. More stories? Yeah. Um, well, I guess, what happened to Mark, you said? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's Mark's Where are they story? now? Where are they now? Actually. The rejects. Actually. <laughs> Actually, that one of the one of the amazing things about Mark is that he had just finished discerning his own vocation, so he had just left seminary. He and I had been friends for a long time, and um, and we'd actually, anyway. So when I was expressing to him that I thought I had a vocation, he just said something that was so beautiful and so freeing for me that made it easier to say no to him. And he just said it would be it would be awful if you didn't enter the convent and you stayed here with me when you're really called somewhere else. You really should go where God is calling you. It was a brave thing to say. So just, you know, in general, I, I think people have been saying, you know, although number of Catholics have been, you know, kind of not rising as much, um, I suppose. Uh, that there is an increase to vocations towards religious life. And you had mentioned, Sister, uh, that back then in Texas, you know, you didn't see religious walking around, uh, but then you, you know, just lately mentioned, but that's a little different now. Would you, could you touch a little more on that? I will. I'm from Houston. So, um, and just something I know from, from being in the convent in the past 10 years, I remember hearing a statistic, oh, this was probably six or seven years ago, that Catholics have now surpassed evangelicals in Texas. So there's that. You tend to think of Texas as the Bible Belt, but actually there's been so much evangelization in Texas, the Catholic Church is on the rise. And so with that come, come the religious communities. I've, I've heard of three or four religious communities that have moved to Houston in the past five years and who are building and expanding and creating, building schools and moving into parishes and re-evangelizing and doing all those amazing things. So while it's certainly true when you're driving down the highway you might not see cassocks waving in the wind, <laughs> the, the religious are there. Texas is a big place, so yeah. Thank you. Sure. Would you say that your community, you've seen an increase even as maybe other communities or? From Texans? Of Texans no. in our community? No, not your Because that's a competition. Yes. <laughs> we, we have a thing at the end of the year, because um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're blessed to receive uh, new vocations. The question is, where are they from? And so at the end of the year, one of the, when, we're, we're kind of scattered to the four winds when the summer begins. Uh, but at some point, we all come together for a big day. So that'd be the profession of vows, and our sisters are making their first or their or their perpetual vows. Uh, but then, kind of before we rescatter out to our different uh, teaching assignments, we all come together and touch base about various matters of the community. But the big one really is the countdown. So in terms of like which state 
do most of the sisters hail from. And for the past few years, it has been a, a Michigan, it was before a while, it was Michigan, New York, Texas rivalry. Yeah. Mi- yeah. Mm-hmm. So I they think forget- those are the top three still, right? I think Michigan. it still is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they won from every state? No, but um, oh, wow. then someone no, decided to break it down based on not per capita yet. or something. And so then Montana would be the winner. We have one from Montana. <laughs> <laughs> like based on population <laughs> distribution, um, right, then huh? the North yeah. Dakota and Montana win. But. <laughs> mm-hmm. So question. Yeah. Touch on the vow of poverty. Vow of poverty. Um, I really think that's actually my. Well, I mean, all the vows are awesome, but um, <laughs> the vow of poverty was was something even like before I entered the convent. Like I would, I would get something, and then I would kind of feel a little depressed actually. When I bought it. Like it was like I'd go shopping, and I'm like, I don't really need all that stuff. Or you know, like I don't know. I got the speaker system for my room one time, <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, it was fine. Like, but I just kind of felt like I just don't need this. Um, so actually, it was not a hard vow for me. Um, the vow of poverty really. Uh, frees you. Uh, I think all the vows are, are, you know, freeing you to really um, just be available, um, have your heart widely open um, to God and to others, and um, you know, not not be weighed down. So, um, you know, uh, and there, and then you you realize as you start living religious life, as you start living even not just religious life, but um, the Catholic life. Um, how many other like baggage things you need to get rid of, right? That God wants to free you from. Um, I don't know. This is I'm a little rambling a little bit, but um, but so it's I would say it's a very freeing vow, and um, and uh, and you know then just goes so nicely in with the other two vows, chastity and and obedience. Um, so if I'm not like trying to cling and grasp and and be greedy, then I, you know, I just I can give myself more to what God is calling me to. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice to go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> I read in scripture that uh, correct me if I don't get this right, but uh, for a rich man to enter heaven would be like a camel going through a needle. Or I, I think I think that actually cuts at the heart of, of, of what poverty is getting at because um, I mean I can think of people who are very devout faithful Catholics who have been blessed materially they have a lot of material wealth and they use it as a gift given to them for the service of others and the building of the kingdom on earth and at the heart of the vow of poverty is that Unencum- like dis I'm making up words, but if Shakespeare can make up words, so can I. Disencumbering, unencumbering, like unburdening your yourself for the desire to cling on to things, to possess things, so that you can be uh, free. And I think what it happens, the temptation in our society is when you, you you know one thing is not enough, and you want another thing, or um, the sense of what's mine, right? This is mine, and it closes you off from other people. Uh, and so, so I think that's what that gospel is getting at, and certainly at the heart of our life of poverty is letting go of possessions so that we can be available. Uh, part of why we talk about being around the country, it's easy for us to move around because we don't have lots of stuff. Like we joke that we can fit our entire life in three travel bags, um, and that would make poverty. That's so poverty enables if it play, plays a role in our evangelization because we can pack up and move pretty quickly. Um, but also, you know, you're you're not as not having to keep stewardship over material goods, you'd be more available to God and to the people that he's put in your life and to your community. 
Um, but I, I think with that, that gospel kind of gets to the heart of that. What's the desire or where, where's the heart resting on your material goods and your possessions and anxiety over those or um, the, the relationship with God and those in your life. Um, so, but I, I know there are a number of people that uh, I know in, in religious life, we depend upon in many ways people who have been materially blessed that are able to help support us in our mission. Um, so we need, we need holy wealthy people too. Okay, thank you. <laughs> 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 um, Sister Sir, um, how did your family stood your decision I think I mean I think it can be especially because it's maybe not as common in our culture or you know families might not be <coughs> expecting this you know um, and lots of parents have dreams for their children I think the biggest dream the parents have for the children is their happiness so I think it was hard on my parents at first because I was studying at the University of Michigan and I had you know I was receiving a stipend for doing my research and um, my, my parents were like, well, isn't that a blessing from God also? Shouldn't you finish your, your degree here? You know, do you have to enter right now? You know, all these questions that they have as parents because they're thinking about, you know, my welfare and what's going to make me, the, what they think is going to make me the most happy. But they, also, but they also said like, well, this is your life and it's, and it's your decision. And I think what really helped them was after I entered and they were able to come visit and see the sisters and see their joy and see the community life and actually I think in many ways it's helped me grow closer to my family because when we I go home every summer and visit and when I go home like we all come together and we all have that as family time or when they would come to visit the convent like it wasn't just like a casual quick exchange but it was like six hours of deep conversation you know mm -hmm. happening so I think that those things have actually helped me to deepen my relationship especially with my mom but you know maybe also with my brothers too you know because we value those times of of being together and communicating um and just to grow and not to take it for granted and just talk on the surface so yeah anyone else want to say anything ditto <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, some sisters who are not here, I mean, have had more difficulty with their parents. Um, but I would kind of say usually when when people actually then come and see it's not some kind of cult where you're being brainwashed and you're still you, that um, they're they're happy, you know, happy for you. So sometimes, yeah, I, I say sometimes I I feel like they, uh, well, at least my family they'll want to send gifts, and I'm like. You know what all these other people like. Don't forget what your daughter likes. They, 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 it becomes part of the family. They realize that they, you know, it is a, you know, you, you join the community and your parents get 120 other daughters. And uh, that can be very fun. Mm -hmm. Sister, you said you're still you. Could you, could you talk more about that? What does that mean? Um, <laughs> I think really you're the, I mean, you're the, you know, if, if God is, God wants our happiness and, um, and in this vocation, in the vocation God is calling you to, you're going to be happy, you know, you're going to be happy. Um, if you're not, if you're just sort of like, no, I'm going to make this work. This is it. But, but there's always this unhealthy tension and anxiety then most likely then that's just that's just not where God not where God is calling you 
Um, a lot of us in our vocation stories, we have like the realization of God's call when we were praying in adoration, and that was also true for me. I was, I was in adoration on one of our uh, retreats in Ann Arbor that we give, and um, it was just there that I felt, I definitely felt Jesus was, was kind of wooing me in a way, like he was calling me, like that's the word that came, like no one uses that word anymore, wooing, but that's the word that came to mind, that he was like, you know, um, asking me if I would uh, be his and be in this, like in this community. And um, I felt incredibly free, like I felt free to say yes, um, or free to walk away but that I knew if I walked away, I'd be like the, the rich young man walking away sad. Um, so, so I think that, um, that just that freedom and just like my heart was, the, the, all of this is very hard to explain in words, but just my heart was very attracted to this more so than anything else. And I had been um, engaged at one point. So, um, so I think, you know, that's where your happiness, your happiness is and then uh, you're the person God created you and redeemed you to be, you know, in your in your vocation. So, mm -hmm. um, how did you, like, any of you, um, feel kind of when you like first wore like your vestments? Because I know, like, with your discernment, story, like, you could tell in your heart that that's what you wanted to be. But I know that it's also different. Like, once you kind of put that on, like, did it take you more time to get used to? seeing yourself like I look like a nun or kind of like how people see you because I know like that must have been a change like yeah it's interesting see you and they just say okay you're a nun you know, this isn't about necessarily the habit itself but your first year in religious life you're what's <laughs> called a postulant and a postulant is like you're it's a terrible postulare the word is to ask and so it's a time of your set stepping apart from the norm to pray to live the life of the sisters but you um, but you don't have the habit you're not making under vows and so you often in communities will wear something different, but it's not a habit, but it's not your street clothes. Um, and, uh, and so we had the, this black community, the custom was a blue skirt and the vest and everything. So my point being is it's not the habit, but I remember on my entrance day, there's a little ceremony, you put the passion outfit on and then we have a little ceremony in the chapel and, and the, no, the novice, so a sister who has not made vows, but she's received the habit, she's one step close to making vows. Um, is responsible for kind of helping the, the new postulant become acquainted with the life. And so this novice, my novice on entrance, they showed me to my monastic cell, the, the room that is uh, set apart for that sister and for her private use for prayer and rest. And But it, all nicely pressed and, and ironed and on the hanger was that postulant elf. And all of its gaudiness, blue vest, blue skirt. But still, there was something about this realization. I, to this day, I mean, I've been in, I'm in 10 years. I was entered the year after Sister Marie Catherine. There's something very real about that moment of seeing that tacky passion outfit on a hanger waiting for me and realizing, like, I'm, this is actually it. Like, I'm doing this. Um, and then putting on the habit, you know, I'll still have these moments every now and then where I look in the mirror. And it's become so much of who I am. Um, and yet, at the same time, there's still these moments where it's like, wow, God, like, here I am, you know. And, and it should be that way, right? So the, the habit is a sign. Um, you know, when we, when we have these talks with little kids, like elementary, say, like, you know, if you, with with you know a cop you know if you see a cop you can ask the cop for help in airports oftentimes or especially in Chicago you'll get people to stop and ask you questions ask you to pray for them so certainly it's a sign to the world but it's also a sign to us you know so every day I look myself in the mirror and is the transformation that this represents actually happening here and a reminder of myself as a, as a bride of Christ that constant reminder of my identity 
um, and also always a constant challenge, you know, to that am I, am I living up to what this indicates, purity of intention, docility and obedience, carrying my cross, all the symbolism that goes with the habit. Uh, so every once in a while, I know I still have moments where I'm like, wow, wow, Jesus, you know, like, here I am. Uh, and, but uh, that, that moment on entrance day with that hat, with the outfit, um, you know, because things went pretty quickly for me, and it was like, oh, my gosh, this is actually happening. Every once in a while, I'll think back to that. It's very... Uh, very, very vivid memory. Can you say something about your names? If you, what, what's the deal with the names? And the what's the names? <laughs> For us, um, this kind of goes along with how how does how do the stages work, so to speak? So the first year, you're a postulant and you wear the blue polyester. Um, the second two years, um, you're a novice and you wear the habit with a white veil. Um, and when you receive the habit, you also receive your religious name. And for our community, we actually submit three choices of names and why why we want those names. So. As a postulant, you know, I spend a lot of time reading about the saints and getting to know different saints and just, we kind of say like your, your patron saint chooses you. Um, so developing relationships with the saints and like, and praying about like whose name should I request, um, and, you know, and actually um, mother doesn't have to choose any of our choices. So she also prays about it and, you know, is asking the Lord for guidance in that. <laughs> And something that I found really, really neat is after, you know, now, you know, years later, getting to know the new sisters a little bit, um, you know, and then knowing something about them and who they are. And then the day they receive their name, hearing mother say, you know, sister, and then saying their name, everybody hears it at once for the first time. And you just have this sense of, so right like that's who she is like that's like it just fits and it's just a really beautiful um you know just a really beautiful occurrence and to have that experience with your sisters and to see like oh yes so mm -hmm. your parents call you by your new name <laughs> they try to family can do it you know yeah. they, they have they all get sorts of nicknames they, they get a pass, pass. They get yeah. a pass. <laughs> like listen if you want mail to get to me or you want the phone 10 years in people are forgetting you know, <laughs> yeah. you know if you call yeah. you know you, if you don't you at least use my religious name on the phone to get me you're not going to get me like, yeah. like i don't know who that is you get the wrong I, number the yeah. Yeah. yeah i figured john paul the second let his friend call, still call him lolek so yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> his little nickname but they have all sorts of nicknames and actually i have all my nieces and nephews that were born after I entered the convent, they all call me sister or Sister Mary Magdalene. Or <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah, like they just I am sister. Like some of them, like they've seen pictures of me before, and they're like, you know, I had one little nephew. He's like, what? who is that? Like that's not you. <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah. Kind of. Well, why don't we uh, wrap up? There's questions after if you're willing to stay we'd, we'd love to have you but thank you so much sisters for coming and sharing your discernment stories and some just yourselves with us it, it's really a beautiful witness to see um, four brides of Christ who devoted their lives to him um, and please pray for us we'll pray for you yes. thank, thank you so much name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen to Jesus we thank you for bringing us together tonight. We thank you for 
this center and all, all the ways you work through it and all the graces you have bestowed on us throughout our whole lives and the graces you're continuing to bestow on us. We thank you for our vocations, for the call to holiness that you've given all of us and for our particular vocations in which we'll live that out, whether we know it already or we're still asking you for guidance. We ask you to give us open hearts to receive the amazing gifts you have for us and hearts full of gratitude. We entrust ourselves to the Blessed Mother and we pray together, Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One more round of applause for the sisters.